I can listen to those kids read Advent stuff all day, every day. So good. So good. Well, I'm glad you're here. Advent week one is all about hope. But for us to have hope in our moment is going to require us to set the table a little bit. I don't know, but I would guess that at least a few of you, either in the room or watching online, hope is not exactly what you feel today. That the moment you find yourself in maybe isn't one of hope. It could be tragedy, it could be a difficult circumstance, it could be any number of circumstantial things that would bring you to a place that isn't one of hope. On a more general scale, when you look around the world, when you look at where we are in our secular moment, which is just a simple way to say our cultural moment, the moment we are without Jesus, and to look around, it would be really easy to say that it's tough to find a ton of hope. I hope by the end of today I can change your mind. But I want to start with a thought that Thomas Aquinas once said when he said these words, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. Let me say that again. I want you to just think about it. To one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. I find that to be a pretty appropriate assessment of where the conversations that we have with the world are. The idea that God would come out of heaven and onto earth as a baby in a manger to live for 33 years, die on a Roman cross, rise back to life, ascend to the Father so that you, right now, in 21st century United States of America, is either amazing or really, really foolish. And so we find ourselves in that kind of cultural moment. And this moment, if we're honest, has a particular set of values. St. Augustine marketed this idea that we are what we love. I think that's pretty true. We are what we love. And what I think in our opinion is that as we continue to make progress as a culture, whatever progress is, we have fallen in love with our progress. Progress has become the proof positive that a government is doing well, that a business endeavor is successful, that a church community has made a difference, and ultimately that your life matters. We even do this in church. We've equated sanctification with progress. But if you think about it, the Age of Enlightenment in the 17th century led to this industrial revolution, which led to materialism, which led Nietzsche to finally declare that God was dead. Not that he was 
actually dead, but that we had finally gotten to the point where we declared that we have no need for Him anymore. That we're good without God. Now, I'm not saying that progress is bad. I happen to enjoy a lot of the things that progress has brought us. We have just celebrated the opening of a bathroom because we are excited about progress, right? So what I'm not saying is progress is bad. I think progress is good. But when progress is the highest good, we're in trouble. Because then it becomes idolatry. And then our vision is not on Jesus. And the fallout from living in a world that's addicted to progress is that we have this buoyant worldview with a fatal flaw. What's the fatal flaw? Sin. Sin is the fatal flaw. And I just want to give you one example of why I think that's true. For all of our supposed progress, if we were to just speak of lives lost in global war, conflict, terrorism, abortion, I mean, we we could just name a few of those things, the number of lives lost is in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of people made in God's image who have given their life or lost their life needlessly in the name of progress. Namely, one country's progress over another. Or one decision made at the expense of another. I just just did a quick Google search, like just in the modern era, like since the First World War, like, like, what are we talking about in like major ones? And I just, I just put down a list of like 10 or 15. Just, just listen to this. Since we hit progress, right? Since we had our technology. Since we had, so World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, Gulf War, Bosnian War, Kosovo War, War in Afghanistan, Iraq War, the Libya conflict, the Syria conflict, the Yemen conflict, the global coalition to defeat ISIS, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the war on Ukraine, and we could list more and that doesn't include abortion and mass shootings in our own country and all the things that we could talk about that would lead us to a place to say there's not a lot of hope. And honestly, for all of the progress there has been, that fatal flaw remains because like the biblical writers told us, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's a fatal flaw because Jesus said in our last study on John that apart from Him we can do nothing. The reason Advent is such a big deal is because Advent is centered around the incarnation of Christ. Jesus came because we needed rescue. But what threw everybody off in the first century, and honestly what still can throw us off, is that he came as a baby. Think about the humanity of that scenario. That he would come as a little baby. And so I want you to know that I didn't come this morning 
in light of all that, to be Scrooge today or the Grinch or negative Ned. But to set that table for the incredibly good news of the incarnation of Christ. But to see the beauty of the incarnation, we have to be realistic about the place we find ourselves. So this Advent, we're slowing down to rest in the story of who God is. And we want to look at some very specific aspects of His character. And to do that, we're going to walk through the biblical story of Ruth. And Ruth, the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth in our Bibles, begins in a place of crisis. It begins in bad news. It begins with death. And Ruth is a story about God's providence. It's a story of love, compassion, mercy, and returning to God. But that's not how the story begins. The story begins in the reality that life is difficult. That life can be cruel. That apart from God's provision and providence, we really have nothing left. And so we start in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, Starting in verse 1, let me just read the first couple of verses to you, and we'll go from there. Here's what the Bible says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. Which, by the way, if you need names for your, for your babies, and a lot of you are pregnant right now, uh, one of those means sickly and one of them means death. So, I mean, just throwing some options out there if you are looking for names. I mean, what a name. So there, there, are, <laughs> there are some commentators that believe those are just figurative, that that probably wasn't their actual name. Like, come here, death. <laughs> right? Like, I don't think... I mean, maybe that was the way it was in first century Judah, or like early, not even first century, this was way before that, like old school, but I doubt it. So these are probably figurative in the story. And so, listen to what happened. So they moved there, and they were, a path, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And then here's verse 3, and this kind of sets the table for where we're at in the story. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And then look at this. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left, this is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. And that's where the story begins. And it's a reality that many of you have probably faced. The reality of loss, the reality of a life gone too soon. It's familiar to so many people in our own world, in our own culture. It's part of the story of humanity post-fall, right, in Genesis. That 
The New Testament writers, Paul tells us that through one man, death entered the world. But the story of hope is that through one man, death was defeated, right? And so we're here and we're thinking about the cultural backdrop. But, but think about the setting here. We have the setting as a man, Elimelech, takes his family because of hardship to a foreign, ungodly nation to make ends meet. Why do I say an ungodly nation? Because if we had time to go through the whole Old Testament, you would find quickly that God told them not to do that. He told his people of Israel, Bethlehem in Judah, where the text says not to go to Moab. Moab was an enemy, and we don't have time to unpack all of that, but you can Google the Bible Project and you can get all that. It's great. Please do that. Okay, we got to educate ourselves and they do it for free and they do it better than anybody else. So do that. There's a ton there on the book of Ruth. But for our purposes, what we're seeing is that our choices matter. That our choices matter. And so Elimelech, the husband and father, makes this decision to leave God's will and plan and provision. And what does that mean? It, it, it's, it's actually quite normal. They've hit hardship. And like any human trying to provide for their family, he tries. He begins to pull that control back into his lap. Just like many of us do. When hardship comes, we don't sit around and twiddle our thumbs. I actually find the story of Elimelech to be one of a bit of comfort that humans for a long time have constantly needed our vision to be redirected back to God where it should be. Because it is so easy when things happen. What, what is our first response in crisis? I think we'd all like to say it's to get on our knees and beg God. But for so many of us, we, we are capable of piecing a few things together. Some of us are really successful at piecing some things together. And so it's actually in our day and age pretty easy to do a lot of life without the Lord. And here, Elimelech, for proper motives, leads his family into a place that wasn't pleasing to God. And listen, for, for all of the things going on in our world, your circumstances may look different than Naomi's in this moment where she follows her husband to another land and then he dies and then her sons die and then she's here with her daughter-in-laws and the setting is fairly bleak. And listen, for all of the progress that we enjoy, I don't know where you are, but maybe your circumstances are difficult today. Maybe it is hard for you to find hope. And maybe it's not even that your circumstances are difficult. Maybe your circumstances are actually just mundane. Maybe your circumstances are actually just the same that they've always been, and, and it might even be harder to find God in that place, in this malaise that we find ourselves in as a culture, where nobody really knows which way is up and which way is down, and who to please and who not to please, and what is right and what is wrong. But in the same way, it may be just as disconcerting to your soul. In other words, life is not as it should be. This narrative is what we encounter in Naomi's life. 
This is where we find her. And I want to look at the rest of the story thinking about it from that perspective and draw some things that the Lord is maybe inviting all of us to do this morning. But look at verse 6. Then she, this is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law. And then here's a key phrase that happens many times in this story. To return. And you'll find that that's a theme happening in this first chapter of the story. This opening of the story. That in the face of that kind of adversity, the invitation that Naomi experiences is to return. From the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way, here it is again, to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, there it is again, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly. This is another key word, kindly. It's the Hebrew word hased, and that's going to play a key role in the story. That he would deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, return, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? There was a whole thing in Hebrew culture called leveret marriage, and there was a way for uh, women in that culture to be taken care of. And Naomi's basically saying, you can just go back home because i got nothing. <laughs> and there's a lot more behind that, but that's essentially what she's inviting, giving them the option to just return back, you're young, find a husband, do that. You don't have to follow my traditions and customs. She's suggesting they do that. Turn back, my daughters, while we go with me. Verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. I should say I have, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? This is very real. She's having a very real conversation with her daughters-in-law. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Ruth said, See your si or Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. And her gods, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave where you go or to return from following you. And then here's a, the key phrase of the whole thing. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. All the more also, if anything but death, parts me from you. 
And by the way, when she says, may the Lord, she's using the phrase Yahweh. So you remember Naomi just said, go back to your gods. And she says, no, 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 I'm going to follow your God, Yahweh. So she actually names the name here. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. No hope. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now listen, this is all backdrop, it's all setting, it's all setting the table for what God is going to do in their midst. So hope is coming, but we have to deal with the reality that where they found themselves, where Naomi found herself, was that God himself had dealt bitterly against her and I don't believe for a second that there's not somebody sitting in here or watching online that doesn't feel the same way. That God, why am I in this place? And I can't help but notice the contrast of decisions here. We have Elimelech and his sons then we have Naomi, God is against me, Orpah returning to what is familiar and then Ruth this sort of conversion experience, whether it was a true conversion experience or not, we don't know, but to declare that Yahweh is her God and that the Jewish people would be her people when she had to have known that as a Moabite woman, she was the enemy. And let's not have it get lost in us that a man of God's people walked away from God's will and it is a foreign enemy woman that will now lead them back into God's will. Isn't that interesting? That Naomi's pushing Ruth to not come back with her, to not return, but to return to what was familiar to her. And she says, no, 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 I am going... And isn't it amazing that through her line, which we'll see at the end, is the very line through which Jesus would come. Let's not have that get lost on us, even though we're dealing with the setting at the moment. That the reason there is hope is that because as the scripture tells us that for those that love God, he's working at all times together things for good. We could go back to Joseph. And after being sold into slavery by his own brothers, he would rise to a prominent position and his brothers would come before him and he would have the moment that he had been waiting for to deal with his brothers. And he didn't choose to, but instead he said the phrase, What you meant for evil, come on, God meant for good. The counterintuitive nature of the gospel is that even when things are bad, God can be working for good. So we read here and we see here that a declaration of your faith in God or of your lack of faith in God is revealed by the choices you make. I struggle with that because the gospel is good news. (laughs) But 
what makes it such good news is that light comes and shines into the darkness. And oftentimes the darkness is the choices that I've made within my heart and soul to do what I want to do and not follow what God wants to do. That is the simple reality of the, of the story of humanity. And so what we just heard from Ruth is this declaration of faith. Orpah's made her own declaration when she returned to Moab. Naomi makes her own declaration on returning to Judah, but saying that she's being judged. Declarations then come from your inner belief system, doesn't it? Which then produces the character on the outside that the rest of us see. See, the scripture says it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, speaks. What is, Jesus would say, it's not what goes into you that defiles you, but it's ultimately what comes out of you that will defile you because we take a lot in, but what do we do with that? Every day you make choices. Many are small and make very little difference, but many other choices along the path of life have great significance. And these choices are made from the heart. I find it interesting that Ruth so loved Naomi that she was willing to throw away really the rest of her life to take care of her mother-in-law. The great sacrifice that was made, where did that come from? It came from her heart. It came from a heart of love. It came from this culture that must have been fostered in that home despite being a little bit out of God's will. Right? That there's, there's redemption happening even in this story. Because I don't know about you, but I look around and go, oh man, like, I should probably, I should probably be on the Elimelech train, right? Like being judged for, for walking away. And yet, in the midst of all that, God is still working. And there's redemption happening. And there are even little bits of light in the story that out of Ruth's heart comes this beautiful story with her mother-in-law. But it's out of the heart that our choices come, that our words come. And I I heard my dad say one time this phrase, and I, I think it's very appropriate. He said this, he said, choices made by faith today will glorify God as your character and godliness is revealed in tomorrow. Think about that. The choices we make by faith today will glorify God as your character and godliness is revealed in the tomorrows. (laughs) So often the, the right choices we make today. Ruth could not have known what was coming. She wouldn't have even had the cultural background to know what was coming in Boaz, if you know the story. She's simply making a sacrifice here because she has met the one true God through this family and is going to give up her life. And as we know in the New Testament, when you give up your life, what does Jesus say? You will find your life. We're seeing these things always at work. Choices made without God today will reveal your lack of character tomorrow. And that's the opposite way to say that phrase. But even in her distress, Naomi makes this critical decision to return to the Lord. I love that. 
And my oh my, how our de- decisions affect others, right? By her choosing to return, it brings Orpa and Ruth to this crisis of faith, doesn't it? Am I going to go back to what's comfortable? I mean, literally, Naomi says, return to your gods. It wasn't just return to your culture, right? But it's return to your gods. And Ruth says, no, no, no. I've I've experienced, I've tasted and seen something different here. I'm going to go with you and your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Because because what's what's the truth? Whatever religion you tend to follow, you choose to follow, you will end up being with those people, won't you? <laughs> it's one and the same. But listen, as we as we think through this, Ruth, seeing Naomi return by faith, believing in God's promise and committing to it, trusted God. Ultimately, she trusted God. Not because Ruth was special, but because she recognized the times. She could look around, step out of her own circumstances, and discern the moment and follow the true God. You are capable of that right now. To take a breath, to take a Sabbath, to take an Advent moment, to discern the times, as Scripture says. And to assess where is the truth, where is the Lord, where is God in this moment. The quote that the kids read on the screen, to recognize the coming of the Lord. He's coming. Always coming. I love that phrase. He's always coming. Life is Advent. It is is the recognizing of the Lord. And as old as the story of Ruth, we have have people discerning and recognizing the coming of the Lord. Why? Because the New Testament tells us that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to eternal life through Him. He's always coming. I forget what writer it was, but who, who said it this way, that the hound of heaven is tracking you down. What a beautiful saying. How do you know God's will, though? I feel like that's like the elusive question, right? Well, how do I know God's will for my life? Well, it's really not that elusive, is it? God's will is known from His Word, through prayer, and being sensitive to His work in the world and in your life. How do I know where His work in the world is in my life? By reading the Word and by praying and by being around His people. It happens. But listen, we say it all the time, and I want to invite you again this Advent season that there are no shortcuts to relationship. It takes time, doesn't it? And we, we have felt that. It takes time. <laughs> time that many of us don't have, right? I feel guilty just saying that to you. Time. Reorienting of priorities. But God, the scripture tells us that God delights in those who love Him, follow His commands, and desire to know Him better. A commitment, a return, listen to me, a return to God today will shape the decisions you make tomorrow and reveal your heart and have a direct impact on what tomorrow will bring. Listen, 
it's entirely possible for you to be a believer in Jesus, to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead and be saved and never experience the fruit of that. I believe that. But I think ultimately that God will work in your heart to the degree that you can't help but slide back to the plans and providence of God. That just like the scripture shows us that none of these people were perfect. It's one of my favorite things about the scriptures that David was messed up, Peter was messed up, Paul was messed up, all the people, right? John couldn't even write John's gospel without digging at Peter for a time or two. It's like, we're all human, and all the humans need a Savior. And we have one. And Advent is about the hope that that Savior is with us, that we sing it, Emmanuel means God with us. And so that commitment will start to shape your decision making, and your decision making will reveal your heart and have a direct impact on your life. Now listen, what I'm not saying is the prosperity gospel, you should know that. Often those decisions that lead to your soul being well will lead to your you know, finances not being well, or your friendships not being well, or your job not going well, or that that's still very possible. But as the scripture says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What does all that have to do with Christmas? <laughs> Has a lot to do with Christmas. Listen, Ruth goes with Naomi to Bethlehem in Judea and starts a new beginning on life. At Christmas, the incarnation, when Jesus came to earth, we call it Christmas. When Jesus came to earth, the incarnation, there it was a new beginning that the world would never be the same. The incarnation of Christ in none other than Bethlehem of Judea. Ruth and Naomi knew what hardship was. The setting as the story begins was difficulty. The death of their husbands moving to a new land. Think about the circumstances surrounding Mary and Joseph as they made their way to Bethlehem in Judea. You have a pregnant woman riding on a donkey in the Middle East, and when they get there, nobody's got a room for them, so they go into a barn and use a feeding trough for the baby. I don't know any of you moms that would sign up for that right now. <laughs> just take me, just put me out in the barn. <laughs> Humble circumstances. Humble circumstances. So, so the parallels are numerous. But, though the birth of Christ took place in a humbling circumstance, the Savior of the world came to earth. Born in a manger, born in a stable, because there was no room available in the inn. And my question for you today is in the middle of the world you find yourself in, in whatever circumstances you find yourself in, the invitation to hope, the invitation of Advent as we start it, is to make room for Jesus in your heart. Because let's be real, in what and we joke about it, the hustle and bustle, right? The greatest time of the year. 
we, we say all the things, but then we're super tired and we're super exhausted and we do too much and we take on too much and we do all the things. The question is, will you slow down and make room for Jesus in your heart? God uses the events of life to work His providence. Your choices can be His choices. In the midst of trial, you can live by faith. You, know, you don't know what He's doing, and trials are often good for you, but at the end of the day, our choices reflect our faith. If I really do think that God is good, that He is in control, that He is in the process of making all things new, and that I am joining Him in the renewal of all things, and that His kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven, and I believe that, it's going to change the way I live. That is the invitation as we begin Advent. Is to make room in your heart. To invite Him to rearrange the furniture. and to see His providence at work in your life. And the best way I know how to do that is at the communion table. It's also interesting to me that Bethlehem of Judea also in the Hebrew means house of bread. Like that wasn't planned. Because as Jesus came, he came to die. He died and then he rose. But he did that so that we could have life. And we have it through the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And so all of these things collide in the person of Jesus. And your hope today, as the hope candle burns, is found in Jesus.